Do you ever want to be a guest on a super cool podcast hosted by a glamorous power couple from their cutting-edge home studio on the outskirts of a major metropolitan world hub? Hollywood, anyone? Us, too. Until then, let's pretend. One of these days, you might get a DM, a PM, an EM, or even a message in a bottle inviting you to join my husband and I for an hour or two in our chat lab, working on solutions for all the world's problems. And when you are invited, there's only one response. Yeah, uh-huh. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Sherry Schreiner. People call me a false prophet. Well, what have I ever said that hasn't come about? That hasn't been true? Everything I've ever said, I've been talking about this stuff for 20 years. Right now... Out of every four humans, only one is real. You know, clones don't walk around with horns on their heads and tails sticking out of their ears. They look like us. We are at critical mass. The fact of the matter is, if you're committed to a cult, you're committed until you leave. (laughs) My name's Steve. I am Barbara's husband. Barbara Rogers says her boyfriend asked her to kill him because he had gotten threats from an online cult. In a world that doesn't make sense, where your faith just doesn't hold up anymore. Sherry Schreiner is your one-stop shop for what the truth is. I don't know the whole story. I don't know if I even want to. There is a clear pattern that this is something that happened. This went down because Sherry Schreiner... I was at my sister's house when Mr. Pengilly called me and he told me that Kelly had killed herself. Everybody turns, wounded shark-like, on the person that they've decided they're going to rip to pieces. There was so much sickness, like mental health problems in this. Sherry Schreiner is a predator. And like the epitome of evil. Welcome everyone to another podcast with Ya Uh Huh. Starring Lisa and Phil. <laughs> We've got to get that straight. Yeah. We're but, working on it. Yeah, well, maybe uh, we'll mix it up sometime. But, you yeah. know, it's our little shtick there at the beginning. You know, I'm sort of an add-on. <laughs> uh, this week, we have as a guest, Tony Russo. And he wrote the book, Dragged into the Light. It explores the world of right-wing cult led by Sherry Schreiner. It was based in... Pretty close to us in Ohio. Ohio. The cult leader lived yep. in Ohio, I believe. And- yep. There is there's some interesting things that came of this. The reason why it specifically came up is there has been a murder and at least one suicide linked directly to this cult. Yes. And so, Mr. Russo, thank you for joining us. I uh, guess to call you Tony. Yes, please. Okay. All righty. Um, we should also okay. mention that uh, there's been a recent um, Spike TV documentary that Tony um, did a lot of work for called The Devil, you may know, based on this on this story surrounding Sherry Schreiner and this cult. Yes, I, I, at the risk of correcting you, it's actually Vice, but Vice. they're all the same to me, too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's Vice TV. It's The Devil, you know. It's also available on YouTube if people are interested mm-hmm. in watching it. Yeah, I it was a pretty interesting if if I may say, I am not generally a crime TV reality TV person, but it was pretty interesting. Yeah. So yeah, it, it held my attention. Yeah, I, I got a huge kick out of it. It's interesting. I've spoken with the producers since 
Mm-hmm. And what I'm finding out as I'm trying to, you know, get people to read my book is mm-hmm. it it's not quite true crime. It falls in this weird gray mm-hmm. area where my 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 father-in-law, for example, he asked my wife twice whether or not it was fiction. You mm-hmm. know, so it's it's like it's a true story about reptilian overlords and that just confuses people. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's I mean a lot maybe, of, uh, maybe it's not fiction per se, as far as Sherry Shepard was concerned, Sherry or Sherry Shriner, Shriner rather. Some yeah. of the peripheral, uh, or the ideas that are put forward in this are pretty uh, fantastical. <laughs> it's, <laughs> when, it's extraordinary, yeah. 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 You can make alien detectors in a skillet in your own home. Yeah, yeah. Tony, why don't you go ahead and, and kind of explain a little bit what the foundation of uh, Sherry Shriner's beliefs were that she espoused on her radio program? Sure. Well, Sherry Shriner talked about, I like to say, like four main things. And what was really special, if we can say special about her, is she just hit the four right notes that vibrated the right way for for people. And so one of them was the Bible codes. She Mm -hmm. claimed to be able to prophesize from the Bible and she got that from a, a computer program that anyone can buy <laughs> that that will, if you punch in some letters, if you punch in some words, it'll show you where that appears in ancient Hebrew in the Bible. So that was that was prophecy. The Bible prophecy was was one thing. Uh, the reptilian agenda was the other. And this is the idea, which is, you know, it's been popularized by David Icke. He's a you know, Kook, who lives in uh, England, who talks a lot about this, and Alex Jones was was very interested in the in the reptilian agenda at all, also. And it's the idea that the president, the majority of the senators, if someone is famous enough to be in the news, then they're probably possessed by a reptile. But mm-hmm. what Sherry did, which worked in a way that is just is just spectacular for me is that she tied that to the devil. And so her idea was not that these were aliens, but rather that they were fallen angels. And for people who aren't familiar with kind of Christian mythology, there's this story of, they call it the story of the fall. Well, the story of the fall is Adam, sorry. Uh, Mm. But there's a war in heaven and Lucifer goes up against God and he and his armies are defeated and, in general Christian tradition, they're cast into hell, but in Sherry's tradition, they're cast onto earth where they start breeding with the humans that are there, creating this evil race of half reptile, half reptile, half human being, mm-hmm. and also other, you know, other, what they call hybrids. So in their mythology or in their belief, pigs, for example, are half human and half devil. Uh, so okay it's 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 so much (laughs) well and that's the thing and so so and step number three is that half of the bible was written by the devil and again for for maybe uh non-christian people who are listening much of the new testament was was attributed to the teachings of a man named paul paul the apostle right paul the apostle never met jesus he would be the considered, I guess, the 13th apostle. He mm-hmm. came along after Jesus's death, and he said that God had spoken to him and told him, you know, to start leading Christians. 
and for Sherry and for very many kind of very fringe conservative Christians, mm -hmm. uh, Paul didn't see God. Paul saw the devil and the devil tricked Paul into writing all of these things. And mm -hmm. one of the things that Paul is famous for writing is, no, no, you can eat pork. So mm. that is a that is a huge problem for some people. Certainly, it's a huge problem for you know for Jewish people, right? Yeah. Right. So it's not just it's not just the the extremities of Christianity. I mean, you know, many Jews don't recognize much of what the New Testament says specifically about the dietary things that go with <laughs> eating pork. Right. And then the fourth big thing for her was orgo. And that, as you had mentioned before, an orgone is a special material that she claims God gave her and people like her to use to fight against evil. Mm -hmm. um, this is a bald-faced lie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'm comfortable saying that because orgone was actually invented by a German psychologist who, who believed in it. His name was Wilhelm Reich. And uh, one of the things I always like to say about Wilhelm Reich is he was too wacky for the Nazis. He was on the outside before the Nazis were really in power there. They, they had no patience for him, but he had worked in Austria with, with Freud. He had worked at Freud's, I'm going to get it wrong because I don't have it in front of me, Freud's hospital in, in Vienna. And he brought Orgone to the United States and Orgone for him, this is, not quite blue, but it's 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 certainly a little bit more adult. He believed that when a person had an orgasm, it wasn't so much physical, but it was a way of participating in the orgone power that is floating all around us. If you think of like from Star Wars, something like the Force. Uh -huh. okay. So when you're having an orgasm, you're communing with this orgone energy. And he thought he had found a way that you could harness that orgone energy so you could get that sense of relaxation and well-being that tends to follow an orgasm without actually having an orgasm. And mm. he built he built a box that people would sit in. And I have a story that I'd like to tell about it if, if, mm -hmm. if, if I'm not going to derail yeah. anything. Um, what was yours? So in, in, my, in my own personal life, a couple of years ago, I started suffering from significant anxiety attacks and I had never before. And so as kind of like a desperation move, I went to an acupuncturist. I had my wife's and several friends there they said go to go to acupuncture. And so I went to this acup acupuncturist. I went about three times. And what would happen was he would put me in a room and put a warm light on my stomach and he would put pins in my ears. And he explained that, you know, these pins were, you know, blocking the anxiety points, whatever. And then he'd put on classical music and then he'd leave the room. And then I would lie there with classical music playing with a warm light on my stomach. And yeah, I felt real relaxed. Yeah. And, and after a while I said, you know, he probably could have put a birthday hat on me instead. <laughs> and it would have worked just as well. I mean, if you sit yeah. quietly and listen to relaxing music and don't have any distractions, you're going to feel better. You yeah. know, I believe yeah. sort of a placebo effect. On Absolutely. I believe, well, I believe med meditation works. You know, I, I don't, I don't think that you have to believe in anything metaphysical to re to recognize that meditation is a good way to feel better. Just be quiet 
and try not to worry about anything and just let the worries come and go from your mind. Right. And you're going to feel better after 20 minutes. Yeah, just, just the act yeah. of letting things go, just, you know, under whatever can put you in that state or whatever. There's probably no exact uh, science to it. It's a, but it is the state is the same probably for everyone. But. And that is what was happening inside these orgone chambers and these orgone boxes. Mm-hmm. But Wilhelm Reich thought that it was it was an event. And now to be clear, he's working in the 1930s. Right. Yeah. So you know the atom is a big thing. Radiation is a big thing. He thinks that orgone isn't different from x-rays or gamma rays or ultraviolet rays or any of the subatomic things that Einstein was talking about. And in fact, he brought an orgone box to Princeton where I, I, Einstein was working and he and Einstein met and they talked about the, you know, the principles of orgone. And one of his, one of, one of Einstein's, you know, research assistants looked at the box and after like, a, a cursory look he's like oh no this is just how thermodynamics works there's no there's no extra energy in here that isn't in the rest of the room right. <laughs> and uh, and so so of course what wilhelm reich said was well we just don't have the tools to measure it yet <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> we're not sophisticated enough to do absolutely that. given that orgone works yeah but now this, in the doesn't uh, in the book it, it describes the orgone. It's like a block of resin. It looks like people manufacture it and that it's put in almost like a muffin. Um, Not I almost mean, like actually a literal muffin tray. Yes. They, yeah. they okay. bake them. They bake them in, in cupcake trays. Right. And they, yeah. they look like, you know, solid metal cupcakes in, yeah. in resin. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. So, and, yeah. and, okay. So getting back to Sherry a little bit, I mean, she, they would go on, they would have Oregon warriors, right? I mean, or they'd have Oregon events where they would actually go to various locations to try to, uh, you know, spread the Oregon and, and, and fight off the reptilian invaders, basically. And she would organize these type things, right? She she absolutely did. And she stole the idea from a guy who was more of a new age uh, high priest than he wasn't a Christian at all. His wife was a practicing witch. And I don't use witch in a, in a discursive like way. Some, right. Some people, some people, yeah. it's weird. My, 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 my daughter actually is involved in, in the Wiccan community. And she said that, you know, she, she explained to me, thank goodness, you know, that some people think witches mean, some people are proud to be witches. So I don't mean it in any kind of discursive way. Yeah. But she was a, she was a nature, a nature worshiping practitioner i guess i can say and they were using orgone in the way that william reich had intended to to you know increase well-being but they also thought and this is critical especially now that people especially now when people are concerned about 5g they would put them around cell towers Mm-hmm. And the idea is that cell towers were spreading negative energy. And if you could put orgone around cell towers, it would filter out the negative energy and improve the environment. Like they thought that it like reduced crime and reduced pollution. I mean, they're still wrong, but there's not there's not anything evil behind it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so Sherry co-opted this and said that it was for fighting the devil. Mm. But she had her people do the same thing. And I think that I'm sorry. So the gentleman who kind of popularized orgone as an 
as a cell tower fighting mechanism. His name was Don Croft. And what his genius was, was he made them and sold them. And I think he made probably a pretty good living doing that, but he couldn't meet the demand or he didn't expect to meet the demand, I guess is what I should say. And so what he did was he encouraged people to make their own. Mm -hmm. And by, by doing that, he set up like a small cottage industry. I liken it to a multi-level, a multi-level marketing scheme. Almost like a pyramid scheme. Absolutely. But there's no buy-in, right? So anyone who wants to make it and sell it can, and anybody who wants to buy it and spread it can, there's no, there's no rules about it, except that when you go on one of these orgone missions, one of these go on, on these adventures, you tell people about it. And so in the book, I think I, I, I make it, I talked about it like bowling. You know, some people like to go bowling and some people like to go out and throw rocks at cell towers. Right, right. (laughs) Uh, Right. And and what Sherry did was she co-opted that whole system. And so, yes, you could buy Orgone from Sherry and she made and sold as much as she could, but the demand was well above her her ability to, to meet. So people made their own. And what I think was genius about what Sherry did is she said, if you can't make it, send me money and I'll make it and I'll give it to people who mm-hmm. can spread it around, but can't afford to buy any from me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I always wonder how many people sold, how many times she sold the same, you know, rock right. Yeah. Right. of, of Orgone, but it became a central a central theme in her ministry. And it, it became the kind of thing that everyone could coalesce around. The other thing that she stole from Don Croft was the name. So Don Croft called the people that were putting them around cell towers, he called them the ethereal warriors. And mm-hmm. Sherry called her people the orgone warriors. She literally took everything he was doing, repackaged it and said it was hers. And she was very successful. I was telling Lisa... While we were mm-hmm. waiting for you to come on, uh, I used to run a paper route, and there was a uh, a guy who did. He, he must have bought. He must have been a multimillionaire because it seemed like he purchased three hour blocks of unadvertised radio time right in the middle of the night, and and I and there was nothing else on, so I, I had him on, and he, he was kind of a crackpot. I thought he, t- he would talk about misogynistic things. I mean. And, um, putting down women and people that would call in, he would, he would demean them and call them whores and, t- and actually incorporate God and told, told, you know, told them what they needed to do to get with God. And mm-hmm. anyway, you know, I just, I just continued to listen because I just wanted to hear a voice, you know, it was lonely. I was out there at three in the morning or whatever. And every time you start listening, it, you'd be surprised the, the things that can start getting into your mind. When someone mm-hmm. starts droning into your brain like that. And that's what I started thinking of when I would hear Sherry in some of these clips in the uh, documentary and the ones on YouTube that I did you know, in preparation for this. So I wonder, I mean, what is it about her or, you know, these cult leaders in particular? What is it about them that, that appeals to people? Well, I, I think that that your experience is very close. It wasn't Art Bell who you were listening to. Oh, was it? yeah, I intended to, to say it was uh, Roy Masters. Oh, all right. Have you heard of him? I haven't. I've I've only recently heard of Art Bell, who did kind of the same thing. I yeah. I thought that Art Bell was more tongue and I'm sorry, 
as I understand it, because I've never listened, right. and Art Bell is no longer with us. But I, I was under the impression Art Bell was a little bit more tongue in cheek. So when you said it was vile, I'm like, oh, maybe it wasn't Art Bell. That's why I want to know. Well, he had he had a very pretentious organization. He called the Foundation for Human Understanding, and it was a very silver tongued Englishman. But his voice would just start to penetrate your brain if you let it. <laughs> it's like it, it, I must have listened, and I'm not proud of it, but. I mean, maybe 40 hours of of Sherry's. I've listened to almost all of her shows. Many of her, not almost all of her shows. That's a lie. Yeah. But more than more shows than anyone should. And it really is just, it's, for me, it wasn't quite Delicious. hypnotizing, but it it is, it is, you can see how people are compelled by it. You can see how, as you said, if you're up, you know, you're, it's late. And you're already kind of susceptible. No one makes a good decision at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> right. you know? mm, yeah. And you're listening to, to her and I won't see, I can see how people thought she made sense, mm-hmm. but I, I will say that she said what people thought, what I guess mean people thought in their hearts mm-hmm. is probably, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of these, I call them the Shrinerites. Uh, a lot of the Shrinerites were just looking for something else. They felt like their churches had failed them. They felt like their government had failed them. Mm-hmm. And they were looking rather than think that maybe there was something wrong with the way they saw the world. They were looking for someone who saw the world like they did, who could confirm their, their sense of persecution, their sense of disenfranchisement. And Sherry gave that to them. And mm-hmm. people would listen to that and say, yeah, I am right. And everyone else is wrong. And Sherry said so. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, when you have a, a really kind of lonely existence, that can be plenty. Yeah. Well, she seems, she has kind of a home spot. You know, you can hear the, I think she was revealed as a smoker, uh, you yeah. know, you could you could tell that in her voice. She's got kind of a, a homespun voice, like your next door neighbor that you might be sitting out on the back porch with, just you know, shooting a breeze with. But it's just that the drone can, you know starts to play. It's play astounding. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It is it is astounding. So I I wrote for a podcast that I ended up not finishing, but called The Opportunist and. You know, that came out and that's about Sherry Schreiner. And I was interviewed for the documentary about Sherry Schreiner. And I wrote a book about Sherry Schreiner. And I've spoken with a lot of people. I've, I've, with a lot of people from the outside, with a lot of other investigators. Mm-hmm. And what's so compelling about this story is on paper, there is nothing interesting about Sherry Schreiner. Like there's nothing at all. What's, what's baffling is on paper, it's why would anyone believe this? Why would anyone die over it? Why would anyone kill over it? Why would anyone pay attention to it? I mean, as, as she wasn't, it wasn't as if she were like, you know, attractive, even her, her voice wasn't attractive. She wasn't an attractive person. She didn't put out, you know, pictures of herself that suggested that she was a very attractive, there was no attraction. This was, you know, this was somebody I at the end of the day, this is somebody kind of like them, someone who was just a regular person, but who was also God's daughter. And people, people liked to connect with that. They didn't want to be talked down to. They wanted to be talked kind of up to, if right. you think of it that way. So, so people started to, cut to, you know, she put herself up over this way, but as a prophet. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and she, 
there's nothing that happened that she hadn't prophesized. And mm-hmm. what's a little terrifying is, you know, people are still very much in, in a very kind of biblical way. When something happens in the news today, they dig up what Sherry Schreiner had said about it and they match that up to the prophecy. And so she's become an even greater prophet as people have dove, dived, gone (laughs) into her, into her back pages to look for explanations of what's going on today. They're like, Oh, Sherry talked about this. Oh, Sherry talked about this, but it's very much like the, the French guy, Machiavelli, not Machiavelli, Nostradamus. Absolutely. Very, very much like Nostradamus, where if you go and you look for the prophecy, you can find it. You'll find it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really crazy. So uh, people, literally gave over their their lives their their will it seemed like to her to where where they you know in in your book you do a great job of profiling two cases in particular i think of of how how badly an influence like this can go off the rails you know and i'm going to take a break for our sponsor right now and when we come back i'm going to talk to tony about those examples welcome back to yeah uh uh-huh with lisa and phil and our guest tony russo and so tony um there are two i I would say there were two main cases that uh, you outlined in dragged into the light where sherry's influence resulted in a very dark end for for some maybe some innocent people and uh, I guess we should maybe talk about the case of um, Kelly Pingilly first. Sure, that's the that's the one I think that is the most important. Just for a little backstory, so there were two people who died as a result of their. I mean, at least two people who died as the as a result of their relationship with Sherry Schreiner. One person was Kelly Pingilly. And the other person was Stephen Minio. Stephen Minio was the one who got the attention. And certainly it was the one that got the book written and that got the documentary done and got the podcast done because it was it was compelling and there was a lot of horrifying audio. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of the things that I got back on my early drafts of the book from my friends is, you know, these Stephen and Barbara, who I will talk about in a little bit, were mm-hmm. kind of flat characters. And, you know, that was... Yeah. Sorry, I muted myself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But th- and that was intentional because there's not... A, they, are, they are the anybody people. But mm-hmm. Kelly was special. And my, my involvement with investigating Kelly's story made me want to write the book. I felt a genuine affinity for her she's she would be the uh age of my oldest my oldest daughter's age Mm -hmm. so this is someone who i really kind of could connect with my my wife is named kelly and for people who haven't read the book yet i dedicated the book to my wife and at first i had said for kelly and my editor said, people are going to think that you're talking about Kelly Pigilly. <laughs> you better mm-hmm. say for my wife, Kelly, because mm-hmm. she is just such, it's such a tragic, wonderful figure. And so Kelly Pingilly was this young woman 
who lived in Michigan outside of Detroit in a town called Redford. And she got into Sherry Schreiner via looking for the Illuminati. And something that's important about my book that I'd like to say as often as I can, because it's easy to miss, even though I say it pretty explicitly in the introduction, people skip the introduction, is that the question isn't about what the internet does to us. The question is about why we go to the internet for answers. Like, yes, if you ask the internet who's in the Illuminati, they will tell you, but why are you asking who's in the Illuminati? And taking that step back, I think is a key to understanding how tied up people can be and how desperate they are for answers. And so Kelly grew up very, you know, strictly, she was Lutheran, you know, it wasn't like she was some sort of wacky religious Lutheran. We all know Lutherans. Uh, She was conservative Lutheran, but you know, Lutheran all the same. And she was looking for more answers. She had, she felt like there was something else out there. And when she was looking for answers, she found Sherry and she got involved in Sherry's ministry very, very deeply. Now, what the trouble with Kelly, I think the main problem, what's so heartbreaking about Kelly's story is that she was under the impression that she was an actual angel. Mm-hmm. Angel and in the flesh, right? An angel in the flesh, exactly. So I was talking earlier about how the reptilians mated with humans. Well, so did the angels. Mm-hmm. And so there are some people who are part of the angel bloodline. And they're Nephilim. called I'm sorry? Nephilim. <laughs> Thank you for being the first interviewer to know that word. <laughs> hey. <laughs> you caught me off guard by knowing what I was talking about for a change. Yeah. Yes. And there are, uh, there, uh, there are, there are fictionalized at least, and possibly even realistic. I've never really traced the realism versus the fiction ideals that the Nephilim are actually supposed to be hunted by angels that they are not acceptable. Hmm. Wow. That's- that I didn't know. That, that, it wow. was just, that's just a word that I had seen, honestly. And, right. the, the, and that's the difficulty. When you're going through this, at some point you have to say, well, you have to put in placeholders. So one of, the, one of my favorite books, one of, the, one of the best books I've ever read is Crime and Punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the problem with Crime and Punishment is all of the names are Russian. And mm-hmm. so at some point you just make up your own names <laughs> as placeholders so that you can get through the book. And if you do that, it's quite an enjoyable book. And it was very much like that with Sherry. I'm like, okay, this is kind of this, this is kind of that. Uh, anyway, so Sher- uh, so so Kelly thought she was a literal angel and she acted like one. Mm-hmm. And this is what allowed her to spin into this deep, deep hole that Sherry was digging. Because from the outside, I mean, you don't see someone who's going around feeding the poor and being just a genuine, genuinely good Christian and say, wow, that person probably has mental issues, you know? And that's why I don't, I don't really like to talk about the psychological aspect of it because I don't like to diagnose people who I haven't spoken with. And I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I don't think mental illness plays the role in this story that a lot of people do think it plays. 
it's I think it's a dangerous this is there are a lot of there are a lot of good true believers in Christianity and that's a tough line to walk when you're going to say well then some of them maybe are psychotic and other of them aren't yeah. and I think Kelly is that perfect example you know she's yeah. literally feeding the poor literally like opening doors helping old people like anything that she could do to actualize her angel self she's doing right. and so there aren't any warning signs unless you're going to count Christian charity as a warning sign of mental illness. And so that's why I don't, I don't like to go down that road because I don't believe that that's the road to go down. If we're going to understand what's going on. Right. Um, I I understand. I see where you're, I see where you're coming from there because I've known some people that have had, that have been troubled, you know, and I would not say that courtesy or generosity or uh, compassion were always their primary um, state, you know? Absolutely. I, I think that, that, some, that, that what you're talking about, her compassion is more of a sign of, of having her faculties about it. Than, mm-hmm. you know, that's, uh, that, that's exactly what one would think. Yeah. And she started volunteering for Sherry, transcribing her shows. And as we spoke about earlier, that is the way to madness because... I'm going to I'm going to tell you a little secret about how I found quotes from Sherry to write the book. I'm not embarrassed about it, but it, it, it's something that's going to sound a little weird. Sherry, because of Kelly and people like her, had every one of her shows transcribed. Mm-hmm. And you, you can still, and this is, I got a lot of my book this way. You can go and you can just type the most obscene things into that search engine and it'll tell you when Sherry said it. And then, and then you can play that tape. Wow. It's, it's insane. And when I was fact checking, like, did Sherry really say, you know, that she was God's daughter? You just type, I'm God's daughter. And pow, there's 10, there's 10 instances. And you get to hear her say it 10 different ways. And then you just pick the one that is the most appropriate for the story that you're telling. Yeah. And I don't feel, I don't feel embarrassed about it, but I just want to give you the sense of how crazy the things that Sherry said was there's, there's nothing that you can, there's nothing that you can think that's mean and not find Sherry saying it, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> and, and, but, and Kelly was one of these transcribers. She would absolutely ridiculously do that. Right. And it, And so she would listen to Sherry for hours. And I don't know if you guys have ever transcribed, but it's hard. You you listen slow and you have to listen again and again and again and again, because you want to get the words just right. And so it's really laborious. I mean, Sherry would do an hour. Sometimes she would do two hours. That's got to take four or five hours to transcribe. And so Kelly became more of an expert on Sherry because I think Sherry was a a, a shyster. So Kelly believed what Sherry was saying and she understood it and internalized it in ways that Sherry didn't. You know, I think that if you showed Sherry a sentence and said, who said that she might say, I don't know. And it could be her. Whereas Kelly would say, well, Sherry said that. And she said that on, you know, (laughs) June 14th, you know, 19, 2009 or whatever. So this didn't cause her to be like disenfranchised per se. It didn't. The, the tragedy. So, I was honored to speak with three of Kelly's closest friends 
uh, the three girls that she had been to grammar school and most of high school with, mm-hmm. and one of her good friends from when she was college aged. And I also spoke with her brother, Nate. And I, I like to talk about what Nate said to me because Nate was the first person that I spoke with. And uh, what he said was when they, when the police came and said that Kelly had killed herself, mm-hmm. he was shocked, yeah, but not surprised. Okay. And then he started kind of like trying to backpedal, but that's exactly the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Like if you think about, like if you think about where Kelly was, it kind of makes sense, mm. but there's no way to know it in advance. Like she gave away all of, she, she, uh, Kelly killed herself not long after Christmas in 2012. Well, mm-hmm. 2000, yeah, 12. And, you know, she gave away all of her gift cards that she'd gotten as presents, but she always did stuff like that. She was a good Christian, right? right? But then when she ends up, you know, having committed suicide, you're like, oh yeah, I guess that was evidence. And you can go back and see the evidence, but you can't use the evidence to go forward. No one, everyone who was Kelly's friend was absolutely devastated by her death. And they- they absolutely, you know, in ways that it's really hard for me to conceive of and, and certainly a little emotional to talk about, mm-hmm. everyone felt a responsibility, you know, and especially 10 years later when I'm speaking with them, they're grownups now. You know, at the time they were 20-year-old kids, 21, 22, 23. Right. And they're like, I couldn't have known. And then now they get older and they've been thinking about it for a decade. And they're like, I should have known. And that I mean, that's always the tragedy of suicide, but this, it just resonated with me speaking with these young women who were like, you know, Kelly would hide things from them because he, she didn't want them to avoid her. So she avoided talking to them about things that they would have challenged her on. And that was the weird secret that I think eventually ended her life. She had a break. She had like a falling out though with Sherry. Right. Right. I mean, she, she was very much uh, not, part of her well this is this is where it's quite convenient that that we've already mentioned nephilim because there was there was a bad actor and whose name is brother rich i call him brother rich in the book and he was jealous of kelly and he outed her as a as a spy and the way that sherry ran her ministry is Mm -hmm. unlike anything I've ever even heard of. Most good cults find out the people who are contributing the most money, um, Mm -hmm. who are the best evangelists, and they hang on to them for dear life. Right. Sherry would kick them out. She didn't want the competition. She didn't. She wanted to prove that the NWO, the New World Order, the CIA, the devil was after her. And was sending these spies after her. And so she would take these prominent people and someone would denounce someone else as a spy. And Sherry would do the investigation. It's very Russian. (laughs) And say, yes, you are a spy. And cast them out. And it would amaze her followers. Because they would say, oh, wow. The CIA got really close that time. The FBI nearly got her that time, mm-hmm. but Sherry was too smart for them. And so she used people, she used disenfranchising people as 
a method of gaining more followers. It's just the weirdest thing. In my research, she split up. I know of eight couples that she split up. I feel like if you told me that she split up 20 couples, I would believe it. She would go after people to split them up, to make them choose between her and their spouse. And if they chose their spouse, she would reveal them as... Spies, spies or or aliens agents of the devil absolutely and that's what what happened huh. with kelly rich rich i'm sorry brother rich said that she was a spy and then they turned on her mm. and the mm. turning on the turning on her is i mean absolutely unforgivable i i didn't i didn't like steven minio on paper but I liked Kelly very much. And to see that they turned on her yeah. just because they were bored and drove this poor young woman to suicide, yeah. that gave me the energy to do the kind of digging that I needed to do to show how despicable the Shrinerites could be. Let me ask yeah. you this. In the, in the uh, documentary, it shows some messages that Steve Minio and Sherry had passed back and forth talking about Barbara. How how accessible was Sherry that way? Was she just was he, was she on people's no messenger? No. And yeah, no, it was very special to be talked to by Sherry. There was usually a mint, an intermediary. There's a there's a character, a person. I'm I'm going to say character because for several reasons. Reason number one, I don't know if everyone's name is real. There are a lot of people in the book who I believe were using pseudonyms and they didn't use pictures, but there's a, yeah, there's a person in the book who I refer to as MJ and, you know, she messaged Sherry for years before Sherry responded to her, Mm. you know, you had to, and again, it's this very, very keep you on your toes kind of culture where, you know, you can talk to Beverly or you can talk to Marianne who were kind of her generals, but asking Sherry a question and getting an answer is, was genuinely for them, like having the Pope call you. Yeah. And she probably did that to create that sensation. Absolutely. She did. Absolutely. She wanted to be special and she created that among her, among her followers by, by making herself, aloof by keeping her guess i guess by keeping herself aloof yeah so i have a note here sherry blamed kelly's death on a nato hit squad in her after you know aftermath yes yeah that was it was the hardest thing to read Mm. it was the hardest thing to hear about she propagandized her death face yes and and steven and steven did as well which which is in the book and i think it's quite effective because I introduce in in the book, you know, Stephen dies on page one. There's no, there's no, you know, no there's no hiding that. But we don't hear from him again until he is spreading Sherry's story about how Kelly died. Right. Oh. And you know, and I, I just, I just thought that was very effective because that's how it worked. Everyone was against the person who was being cast out until they were the person who was cast out, mm-hmm. and. It was 
genuinely like having the rug pulled out from under you. One day you wake up and everyone that you know hates you and says you're a spy or hates you and says you work for the FBI or hates you and says your wife is a reptilian witch. And there's no warning. It's just out of the blue. And so, yeah. So what was, what Sherry tended to do was to completely manufacture stories about people dying and get people to believe that that was the truth. In Kelly's case, what was horrifying Mm -hmm. was that someone had also hacked her Facebook page and left a message saying, you know, faking my death was easier, was, was easier than, than you think or something like that. I don't have it. And then you know, people started to believe that, yes, Sherry, Sherry's follower was killed by NATO. Yeah. Um, and that just made them believe in Sherry more because if NATO took the trouble to kill someone who, for, for all they knew, was important to Sherry, then, mm-hmm. you know, then they were part of a really elite group and only God and Sherry were protecting them from the CIA hit squads or the NATO hit squads who were coming out trying to kill people who followed sherry it was it was absolutely i mean the one i spoke with one woman and she was almost inconsolable when she was telling me the story you know she's like you know i was i was 20 at the time and i think she literally said like you know and and after years of therapy it's still hard and it's just brutal it's just so brutal what people will do for money and for recognition and it's it's disgusting, but it's something it that I think we I think we have to acknowledge. Right. You know, I think pretending that these are just kooks running around is certainly not the way to handle it. I think, you know, as I as I say in the beginning of the book, I think that January sixth showed us that, you know, just saying, Oh, well, they're just kooks isn't uh, <laughs> isn't yeah. gonna work. So yeah. that's your doorstep, right? <laughs> right. Right. So okay, so yeah. Steve Minio seems the case of Steve and Barbara seemed to be textbook about exactly what you're talking about, about, first of all, Steve was very close to Sherry. Obviously if she had, she was communicating with him over text. So he was very much engaged. And at the beginning, so was Barbara, but I thought Barbara's background was interesting and that she had a, a very model domestic life almost before getting together with Steve and then at, she had a, like I think two children and a, and, a, and a husband and and Sherry had convinced Steve to move to the Poconos because of the I guess because just because it was very tranquil and a peaceful area to live or something and so he and Barbara were living together in the Poconos and and at some point Sherry started to put a wedge between Steve and Barbara and suggested Barbara was a witch, a reptilian, yeah, or a spy. Yeah, a fake person. And, but uh, Steve bucked against that, right? I mean, he he started to see Sherry as possibly a false prophet and point out some of her errors. Yeah. Yeah, so Stephen is, Steve is just, he's a weird, he's a weird, weird guy. A couple of things at the at the risk of contradicting you, the one of the reasons he moved to the Poconos was actually nine eleven. Okay. Stephen actually he lived not far from where I grew up. Certainly, he lived very close to where I was. I was born in Jersey City. He grew up in North Arlington, 
my I, my grandparents are buried in North Arlington. It's it's kind of you can kind of see New York City from there. Okay. And I don't think that we as a country have dealt well with the 9/11 attacks. I know it's okay. 20 years later, but it's a specter that looms over us especially in the truther movement. I mean, um, I think I say it in the book, the truther movement was born on September 12, 2001. There's there's a date yeah. for that. And so yeah. Stephen was a truther and he was I mean, I know people like this. I've worked with people like this. I was in the hotel business for a while. And, you know, in early in, in by the beginning, the end of 2001, early 2002, all of a sudden I was not the only one with a Northeast accent who was living here. You know, there was an exodus because people were terrified after that. And Stephen was looking to go someplace where he would be safe. And Sherry recommended the Poconos for the reasons you said, you know, it's beautiful, it's tranquil, and it's remote. And Stephen set up like an orgone base there. And so he would start to make and distribute orgone from where he was living. Barbara is a really interesting character. One of the greatest differences between the documentary and my own book is I don't take Barbara, Barbara's past apart as at all for, for, for lots of reasons. But the, the main one is there's actually even more than there was in the documentary. There's, there's just some things that are irresponsible to say, if I, if I could be honest. Okay. And, and it's easier to not tell the story at all than to tell some of it. And that was the decision that I made. It was an editorial decision and I stand by it. But Barbara was, she had been in the military and she had suffered from, if I recall correctly, bipolar disorder that was severe enough to get her honorably medically discharged. So she had a medical discharge and she had a pension. So she never had to work again. And Stephen had never actually worked in his whole life. He didn't have a driving license. He... reclaimed things and sold them on eBay. And that was kind of how he made his living. I had spoken with him with his mother via email. And she said that that's pretty much how he had always done things ever since she was a kid. You know, he was good with his hands kind of thing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, he made, he took full advantage of, of eBay. He was involved in a multi-level marketing scheme, selling free eBooks, selling free eBooks. I think that's all you need to know about Stephen Mineo. <laughs> it's coming from a writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what's critical to understand is that Barbara wasn't, if she wasn't, she was certainly Stephen's first serious girlfriend. Mm-hmm. She may have been Stephen's first girlfriend at all. Yeah. And she was a decade that older than sense. she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so, but she wasn't a responsible person. You know, I, yeah, I sound like it. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I glossed over it. Her, her children seem like such nice people and they seem to be having a good life that they didn't need me, you know, poking around in, but she wasn't in regular serious contact with them. She was, I think pretty good about sending them cash when she had it, but she was just, she liked to drink and she liked to hang out. And she had the money and the opportunity and, you know, she took care of Stephen. And so 
when Stephen convinced her to move to the Poconos, there's also some rumors. I don't remember if I hinted them in the book or not, but there's rumors that they were living in North Arlington and she had a falling out with his family, mm-hmm. um, specifically his dad. And uh, that there, the, there may be something to that. I've heard it. I've heard it a couple of times. I, I honestly don't even know if I wrote it because I know I was, I was on the fence about mentioning it, honestly. But so then they moved together to the Poconos and they had an online relationship for just a couple of months. I think Barbara said seven before they moved in together in the Poconos. And, you know, they lived within walking distance of a bar and that That's was kind awesome. of their day. They would make, they would make Orgone. Stephen would make Orgone. They'd surf the internet. They'd watch television. They'd get high. They'd drink. And, you know, it was like being, 20 year old uh, with a trust fund except they were in their 30s and 40s and you know not on a trust yeah. fund well but i mean you know they had money practically they they had enough money for a a, a studio apartment or a one-room trailer depending upon mm-hmm. you know how you want to couch that and and to you know as, as to go out a couple times a night a couple times a week and certainly to keep themselves well lubricated when they were home and mm-hmm. they they moved in in March. Sherry exposed Barbara as a reptilian witch at the end of May. Mm. And Stephen was dead in the middle of July. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And in and the documentary, like you said, there was some very visceral audio from her phone mm-hmm. call to 911, I guess. And they had footage of the interrogation, in which I thought was really... Ter- compelling but mm-hmm. terrible for her because yeah. she was an open book with with a, quite a bit of lunacy without was, representation <laughs> it was it was tough to watch there's a comedian yeah. his name is tom segura yeah. mm-hmm. um, and he does a, a a joke about that kind of thing that i just want to share with you very quickly mm-hmm. uh, he says I'm going to talk to the cops about straightening this all out. And he says, you're going to do 25 to life. Right, right, right. And and that is absolutely the case with Barbara. There's there's no world where Barbara was sober during that interview. No, no. Because, yeah. And not just alcohol, just something else was involved. There was an interview from later when uh, Mm -hmm. they came, she was, uh, you know, serving her sentence, not to uh, spoil it, but she was much more lucid during that interview you, know, you could tell yeah. it was night and day she was much more um together together yeah than on the night when so what what actually happened i mean uh, we kind of know that there was a gun involved and that steven ended up ended up on the wrong end of the gun so what exactly happened that night i there is there's so much and i don't want to i don't want to prejudice anyone who hasn't read the book and this isn't a plug it's just that i think yeah i make i make a pretty subtle case for what i think happened yeah but it's pretty subtle so if if people don't if people don't see it i don't want to point them at it but the facts of the matter go like this they were drinking a lot and they were smoking this drug called kratom well at least steven was what was the conspiracy theorist in me realizes that they decided not to drug or alcohol test Barbara because if they drug and alcohol tested her and then interviewed her, everything she said would have been thrown out. There's no way at at one point. So I listened to the entire five hours of her in that room by herself. 
And sometimes she's with the interviewer, but there are long periods of time when she's just talking to herself under her breath. Mm-hmm. And one of the things is, I can't believe I haven't blacked out yet. Or if I blacked out, why don't I still feel drunk? Something like that. But she's, mm-hmm. she knows she was drinking a lot. Having never yeah. shot someone in the head before, she doesn't know what adrenaline does when you do that. Yeah. Right, right. And so she is just confused that she's still even conscious. She's also confused that they haven't brought her lawyer yet, but she didn't ask for a lawyer, you right. know? You're not going to see one unless you ask. Right. Well, that's the thing. They say if you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you. Mm-hmm. And she took that. She's like, well, I can't afford a lawyer. They must be going to appoint one. She doesn't know that she has to ask. So I, I felt, I felt really weird watching it. It was, it was horrifying. If you get arrested, just keep saying, I want to talk to my lawyer, no matter how innocent you are. Lawyer. Trust me. Lawyer. Right. Lawyer. Especially if you're innocent. Yeah. Especially if you're guilty, but also if you're innocent. (laughs) Well, either way, just lawyer. The word, you don't even have to say anything else. You just say lawyer. Yes, lawyer up. But she didn't do that. So let me, I'm sorry. So let me go back. Mm -hmm. I will tell you what I think happened before the incident. I, I, I think that Barbara was tired of Stephen. I think that she either hinted that their relationship was over or flat out told him that their relationship was over. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think I, I think I nod toward that in the book, but asked point blank, I'm on an answer point blank. So Stephen, something happens and Stephen gets upset. He gets out his gun and they go outside and Stephen liked to fire his gun into the woods when he was upset. And he liked her to fire the gun as well. So he went out and he squeezes off three rounds and she squeezes off one. And then she's like, let's just go to bed. But the one thing, if you have the chance, even after you read the book, even after you watch the documentary, listen to the entire 911 call, because Mm -hmm. I think that is the closest to the truth that anyone is going to get. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Barbara was probably an hour into the interview before she realizes that she, that the police think that she killed him on purpose. Like, I I think that she thinks that she's just a witness to a, a suicide for the first part of that interview, but they're, they're outside, they're shooting the gun and they go inside. Yeah. And then at some point, Steven takes the gun and puts it in her hands and he has his hands over the barrel and the gun is to his head. Mm-hmm. And the gun goes off. I don't exonerate Barbara in the book. I think that what she was convicted of is probably fair. Yeah, um, she was convicted of a third degree murder, and I love this. Actually, the original title of the book was called "Depraved Hearts," and Pennsylvania is one of four states where there's such a thing as third degree murder. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most places have second degree murder and then manslaughter, but Pennsylvania has third degree murder and it's called depraved heart murder. And it is acting with a depraved indifference to human life. And I know that she had a tough time. I know that they were all drinking. I know that things got bad quickly, but I think we can all agree that if your hands are on a gun near a person's head, you're acting 
with depraved yeah. indifference toward human life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no matter how, no matter how bullied you feel. Of course, my, 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 my alternate science fiction ending in the book undermines that a little bit. Well, that's, um, don't re- don't reveal that. People. I won't. I won't. What I what I will say is, and I think this might even be a direct quote. It's certainly something I said in the documentary. Uh, I actually I don't know if they use it in the documentary, but this is what I believe. Yeah. I believe she didn't want to kill him, and he didn't want to die. Yeah. But circumstances intervened. I gotta but, say, I, I was really, I really felt bad. I, I felt bad for her. Maybe uh, I did. No, I, I absolutely sympathize. I don't want to. I don't want to say I don't sympathize with her. I have, I have uh, someone with um, bipolar in my family, and and I could, I could see a little bit of that in her behavior. So it was, you know, at least in the documentary, it was kind of sad. But I, you know, you think about Jim Jones. And you think about David Koresh and the uh, Charlie Manson. Yeah, you think about I mean, these maybe cults. Not as much, but it's it's there. You think about the worst case scenarios of these cult leaders, mm-hmm. and the way that they can affect people's lives can extend way down to to you know more ordinary cases. And in this case, Sherry, we should mention that Sherry is gone now. She passed yes. away, right? Yes. But um, I, well, I, at least that's what the evidence indicates. I, I have her death certificate. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I paid twenty five dollars to make sure that the state of Ohio declared her dead. Yeah, well, you got to watch was... that state because that state is really whack. Yeah, well, <laughs> and one of the things that amazes me is there are so many people that are not aware that you don't have to have any special credentials or relationship to get a copy of someone's death and or birth certificate. Right. There's almost no security. All you got to do is have money. Oh, yeah. No, and not much. I guess I think it cost me $25. Yeah, right, so. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tony, I want to end it there. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, you said you're writing more stuff. And I'd be interested in reading that on down the road. Mm-hmm. But I really enjoyed We'll definitely keep our eye on you. The book is dragged into the light. You want to tell the people where they can get that? Sure. Well, you can you can get it pretty much anywhere. You can get it on Amazon if you're um, one of the anti-Amazon people, and I've had several of them reach out to me. You can go to bookshop.org, and what they'll do is you buy the book from them. They mail you the book, and then they credit to the sale. You sign. You tell them which bookstore is closest to you, mm-hmm. and then the bookstore that's closest to you gets a cut of that. So oh, cool. that's yeah, that's a that's a cool thing that, that I don't think enough people know as a, about. As a but reader. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I'd rather you buy it on Amazon than not buy it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. There you go. All right, Tony. Uh, okay. Hopefully we'll talk to you again. I, I would be wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you. Have a good evening. Have a good evening. All right. Hey, listeners, it's Lisa and Phil from Yeah Uh Uh-huh. How are we doing? We love feedback. Please use our socials to let us know what you think. We have socials. Twitter. Yeah, uh-huh pod. Instagram. Yeah, uh-huh pod. Facebook. Yeah, uh-huh pod. Notice, Notice a pattern. pattern. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.